John chapter 5, it's our 14th week in the study of the gospel of John. And uh, next week we'll dive fully into John chapter 6. We'll sort of dip our toes in the pool of John 6 this morning. Um, But the first six chapters of John we're calling Encounters as we sort of look at these encounters that Jesus has. And this morning, as we're going to see uh, and hopefully experience our encounter with abundance. Now, let me give you some context before we begin. We're going to begin this morning in verse 31, but we need to make sure that we're all in the same uh, storyline before we jump in. Now, remember, we're coming off of this event where Jesus encountered a man at the pool of Bethesda. For 38 years, he had been laying there lame, waiting for an opportunity to hopefully uh, jump into the water as it was stirred, that somehow he might be able to be miraculously healed of his affliction. Jesus goes to this pool at this crowded time. He, he steps over all the the multitude, the Bible says, that's there at the pool, goes to this specific man in a specific place, commands him to pick up his mat and walk. Subsequently, the man stands up and begins to walk as if nothing were ever wrong with him. And the Scripture says in verse 16 that for this reason the Jews began to persecute Jesus. They, they sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. And then in verse 18, the Bible says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, so that was the first thing they were upset about, but then it goes on to say, but also he said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. And so there's this great tension in this moment, as the adversaries of Jesus have now been you know, aroused, and, and, and the, the table is set for the... The disaster to come, not only in chapter 6, but the ultimate disaster that will eventually occur in his betrayal and his crucifixion, which will wind up being our greatest victory. So this morning, as we sort of begin to look at this last part, I I had to, uh, I just felt God leading that we needed to have this particular conversation. These are some uh, complex verses often overlooked but filled with wonderful practical uh, help that I believe God wants to speak to us this morning. So let's begin if you have your listening guide by asking two questions. The first question is do you read your Bible as a book about God? When you read your Bible is it are you reading your Bible as if it's a book about God? What I mean by that is that you would read a uh, textbook on biology as if it were a book about biology. You might read a dictionary as a book about words. The Bible, although it is a book about God, should not be read as a book about God. Second question is, do you read the Bible as a path to a better life? The second huge error to make 
is to approach the Bible as a book filled with information that is going to make your life better. Again, just like the first question, the Bible is a book about God, though it shouldn't be read that way. The Bible is a book filled with information that will indeed and does indeed have the power to make your life better, though one should never read the Bible as a book filled with information that will take you on a path to a better life. That is a colossal, and we will see this morning, an eternal, oftentimes, mistake. And so with all of the animosity building and all of the Jewish religious leaders on the hunt for Jesus, Jesus will now make his case, beginning in verse 31, where he simply says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. In other words, he knows the mind and hearts of all men. And he also knows the mind and hearts of those who seek to kill him. And he knows that in their uh, desire to quiet him or to do away with him, that their assumption is, is that here is this one making these uh, erroneous claims that he is the Son of God, in fact, equal with God, and that they cannot tolerate. And so Jesus, as only Jesus would do, stops and takes time to address those who seek to kill him. And so here's the pattern that he's going to lay out before us. The first thing we're going to look at is Jesus is going to talk about his lamp or my lamp. In verse 32, Jesus says, There is another who bears witness of me, and I know the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now here he's not speaking of John, but he's speaking of his father. Then he says, You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Now, as he's introducing... This first witness, the lamp, what's interesting to me is that Jesus tells these people who are clearly against him, who clearly have hearts that mean nothing but evil towards him, and yet he tells them, I say these things that you may be saved. You begin to see that Jesus is relentlessly devoted to the mission of the Father regardless of the people who are in front of Him, regardless of how unsavory the character of those in front of Him may be, regardless of how obnoxious or how wrong or how unwilling or even how threatening they may be, no matter who they are, the Lord Jesus is, as He has said, utterly and completely devoted to the mission of the Father, which is to redeem the world. And so even in this situation, He takes time to say to those trying to kill him, I say these things that you might be saved. Now here's what he says about John. Look at verse 35. He says about John the Baptist that he was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Now when he says that, he means the reality of the moment that 
these people did go to John, the Bible tells us, and they went to John when John began to preach the gospel and call for people to repent. And they went to John and said, who are you and what are you doing? And they listened to John, and John said, well, I'm not here for me, but I'm here for another. And every time someone asked John, are you the one? He would say, no, I'm not the one. And Jesus is simply reminding them that, you know, you were drawn to John for a time as a lamp. But he's also reaching back. And he's also uh, peering into the uh, conscious of these religious leaders and reminding them of Psalm 132, verse 17, where the Scripture says, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, the Lord says, There I will make the horn of David grow, and I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. Knowing that he's speaking to people who have devoted their lives to the consumption and memorization of the Scripture. But Jesus is saying that John's testimony is really the testimony of God. In other words, because before John was, before John the Baptist ever was, God had already spoken about what John would do. So even when John comes on the scene and begins to talk about Jesus, what he's saying is really the testimony of the Father, not the testimony of John. Because the Father is the one who's already predicted that all of this would happen. And so Jesus is merely saying that this lamp that came for a time to shed some light on the fact that who I am, and that I've been predicted to come for hundreds of years, that you should know that. I'm standing right before you, and you still relentlessly are devoted to your own ways and to your own agenda, even to the degree to which you want to kill me, but I say these things that you might be saved. I think it would be good for us to pause here for a second and reflect on our own lives and ask the question that when God began to draw you to himself, who was a lamp in your life that for a time shined light as God was drawing you in? That God oftentimes does just this same thing in our own lives. That when we are, uh, when God begins to enlighten us and, and pull our hearts to himself, he will put people in our path, he'll put people in our lives who begin to shine the lamp of, oh, that's what a Christian looks like. I can remember that before I ever had any idea that I was going to be coming to church or what Christianity was about or any discussion about God was even anywhere on my mind, I remember that just being around Lisa's family was a lamp to me. I knew they were different. I knew that I'd never seen that before. I knew that the way that they related to each other and the things that they talked about and the the belief structure that they had was completely different to me. And it began to be a lamp to open my mind up to the fact that, wow, there's people out there that are utterly and completely different than anything I've ever seen before. Who was the lamp in your life as God began to draw you to himself? The other question is, in whose life are you currently a lamp? 
As we remember last week, we saw that God is now working and has been working. And we saw beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is working in our lives today. He's working in our surroundings. He's working in our workplaces and our neighborhoods. He's working in the people that we cross paths with. And He's placed you and me in those specific places to be a lamp unto Him. So that those people that come in contact with us would recognize that there's something different about us. And would begin to draw their attention to the things of God. So Jesus first talks about his lamp or my lamp. Secondly, Jesus will talk about my labor. He'll say my labor. Now, in the defense of himself and who he is, he says in verse 36, But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. In other words, he's saying John was a lamp that for a time you were drawn to. But let's go a little further than that. Let's look at the things that I've done. In other words, did John heal a man who was laying next to the pool for 38 years, lame? Did John do that? No. Did John... Heal a nobleman's son without even ever seeing him or going to where he is simply by speaking it into existence and telling his father, your son is made well. And that very instant, his son was made well. You see, they knew that Jesus was doing these things because over and over, John the gospel writer has been telling us that they were drawn to the Lord because of the signs in which they saw. And so they knew that Jesus had been doing all these things. They knew the story of the wedding at Cana. They knew all the things that we've covered. And then some. And Jesus is pointing out, John didn't do these things. John couldn't do these things. Clearly, I am greater than John. The Bible says that John was the greatest of men born of a woman. He was a great preacher. He was a preacher of repentance. He called people to the Lord. He perfectly executed his calling. But he wasn't God. He wasn't Jesus. He couldn't do the things that Jesus could do. In Luke chapter 16, verse 31, Jesus said, But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. In other words, Jesus is pointing out that he has done all of these things. And that he is not like John, that he is greater than John. But he's also keenly aware of the reality that these signs are insufficient to bring someone to a saving knowledge of him. He recognizes that he's talking to people who are aware of his signs, yet their refusal to repent and believe the gospel is not due to a lack of evidence. You understand? Listen, you would would think to yourself, wait a second. I mean, just imagine for a moment that you were one of the invalids laying around the pool at Bethesda. If you saw that happen, what more would it take? I mean, what, what questions could you have? 
I mean, this guy that's been laying there for 38 years hops up and just instantaneously walks as if nothing were ever wrong to him. And what are you going to raise your hand and say, well, I have a question. No, I don't have a question. Or if I have a question, my only question is, what is your name? Because I believe in you. But you see, that's not how it works. They've, it seems that it would work that way. But, but these people have seen all this evidence. Their hearts are hard. Evidence will never sway a hard heart. They were desirous of the signs that Jesus could perform. They were self-centered and self-pleasing. They were devoted to getting what they could get. Signs so, so clear, so clear, and yet they don't compel people to believe. You see... Unbelief is a heart issue. It's not a head issue. Evidence doesn't overwhelm unbelief. No amount of evidence will ever turn unbelief into faith. The scripture says there's only one thing powerful enough to overcome unbelief. And that's where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning. As Jesus transitions to his loudspeaker. Jesus will say, well, what about my loudspeaker? What about the, the evidence that is most compelling, most powerful, and that you are most familiar with, and that you are most aware of? The Bible says that the gospel itself is the power unto salvation. Isn't that what the Bible says? Yes, it is. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. That is one of the most staggering statements that has ever been uttered on earth. Think with me for just a second. The people who are most devoted to the Bible on the planet, who have memorized the first five books of Scripture, who who worship the Scripture in such a way that they take the Scripture and turn it into jewelry and put it into little boxes they called phylacteries and, and put them on their forehead. These people were obsessed with the Bible. Obsessed. They, they had been to every Beth Moore study under the sun. They never missed uh, Sunday school. They were involved in every ministry opportunity you could possibly be in. They were totally and completely, if ever you could have a one-track mind, it was them. And Jesus says to them, you have never heard my voice. And you've never seen me. You are utterly and completely blind. What? Look at what he says in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are the words, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have Life. 
my goodness. Your Bible study means nothing if by it you are righteous. Our Bible study means nothing if by it we are righteous rather than through it you are drawn to the one it reveals. Listen. If you get anything out of this morning, this is the central key point that you need to absorb into your consciousness and recognize as a reality and a warning that God is giving us here. Jesus isn't saying that these people have a wrong view of Scripture. He's not saying that they have a wrong view of Scripture. Let's just think about this for a moment. Why are they memorizing the Bible? Why are they obsessed with the Bible? Is it because they don't believe that it's true? Of course not. They believe it's true or they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. Their view of the Bible is utterly accurate. What is the problem? And and remember now, these Bible scholars want to kill the Lord Jesus. Their view of Scripture is dead on. What's the problem? Their use of Scripture is wrong. The problem is in their use of Scripture. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures. Look at verse 39 very closely. For in them you think you have eternal life. Notice Jesus does not say, for in them you find out how to get eternal life. He says, in them you think you have eternal life. They believe that the knowledge of Scripture is how you get favor from God. They have turned the greatest gift ever given to mankind apart from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, which He is the Word according to John chapter 1. They've turned this gift into something they can get what they want out of. Now listen, there are some of you in here this morning and you come to church because if you don't, you feel guilty. Now I want you to just think with me for a moment about that. So you come so you don't feel guilty. Is that a wrong view of church or is that a wrong use of church? Some of you give in the offering because if you don't, you feel guilty. Is that a wrong view of giving or is that a wrong use of of giving? 
Some of you read your Bible so that your day will go well. Is that a wrong use of Scripture? You see, it is true that you ought to come to church. It is true that you ought to give to the kingdom of God. It is true that you ought to read your Bible. It is true that reading your Bible will be beneficial to you. But the question is deeper than what are you doing. The question is, why are you doing what you're doing? It really is shocking. We can be so involved in Bible study that we fail to see Jesus Christ in the Word. We can be so consumed with learning and becoming knowledgeable that we miss the point. Now that's hard for me to say, right? Because certainly I've devoted my life to teaching people the Bible. But how? How have I taught you to approach the Bible? Why? I feel like there's this moment where There should be this collective scratching of the head and thinking, how can this happen? If you study the Scripture to feel good about yourself, you're using the Scripture in the wrong way. And here's what happens. Whenever you approach the Scripture so that you can get something from it, For yourself. Then this very dangerous sequence of events begins to unravel. You see. If I'm reading the Bible like a book about God. Then what invariably happens is I lose the ability to discern what are the central themes of Scripture and what are the supporting themes in Scripture. I can't, I don't, I don't see the nuances and the fullness of what's going on. And so all of the information in Scripture becomes equal because I'm looking for what I can get out of it. And so when I find something that suits my need, when I find something that fits my fancy, when I find something that I like, then what do I do? I prop it up on a shelf. Now the Bible may not prop it up on a shelf, but I do because I like it. Because I'm unable to discern the fullness of what the gospel is about and what the scripture is trying to teach. And so what happens is, invariably, the way that you know 
that this is going on in your life is that you make a very big deal out of minor things. You become a Pharisee. Why do they want to kill Jesus? He just healed a man who was laying there paralyzed for 38 years. They want to kill. They don't even care about that because why? They're obsessed about what? The Sabbath. They've written books about the Sabbath. They've written volumes about all the things that we're supposed to do on the Sabbath because that's all they can think about is the Sabbath. They're consumed with the Sabbath. How does that happen? Well, it's simple. You just read the Bible like a book about God. You just come to the Bible to find something for yourself, and guess what you're going to do? You're going to get all tangled up, and you're going to make mountains out of molehills, and you're eventually going to become a Pharisee. I meet them all the time. Pastor, I need to have a conversation with you. Okay. Well, here's my problem. Okay. And they start rambling on about some obscure thing. And I say, hmm. Refresh my memory. How many people been baptized in the last year? What? How, how many thousands of ways have we seen God's spirit moving and lives transformed and things happen? Yeah, yeah, I know that, but what about this little thing? Yeah, but I'm trying to draw your attention to the big thing. There's a big thing. There's a big thing that God's trying to do here. You understand that? You're hung up on this. We have a whole denomination. Their name is built on they're hung up on the Sabbath. I mean, it's not our denomination, but it is a denomination. I wonder if they ever read this text. See, here's what happens. If you, if you use the Bible wrongly, you miss the forest for the trees. You miss the forest for the trees. That's how they got so off track. We can't get off track. We have to stay on track. Sometimes it's hard to stay on track, right? So raise your hand if you were here last Sunday morning. Now, raise your hand if you are aware of all the chaos that was going on as I was trying to preach last Sunday morning. So all of you over there, just raise your hand. Raise your hand if you observed my tendency to try to talk this way for about 15 minutes at the end of the service. Raise your hand if you are severely attention deficit. Because all of you in the room that are attention deficit, as the water is pouring out of the ceiling, you're, I'm looking at you and you're going, I, I can't, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. There's a squirrel, squirrel. Squirrel. I'm like, hello, it's just water. It's okay. The first look is the same as the million. You just can't stop, can you? 
some of your heads were going to like fly right off your bodies. I'm going, whoo, over here. You get a pass. But we just persevere. We got to stay on track. So everything that they have been learning and knowing about the Scripture is about Jesus. Let me give you a couple examples. Exhibit A, Jonah and the fish. Jonah the prophet ends up overboard in the ocean, swallowed up by a giant fish. The Bible says three days he's in the belly of the fish. And then he's spit up onto the shore. Now, that's an odd story. Why is that in the Scripture? I mean, what, what point does God have in, in all of that? And, and again... I think that God intentionally does the things that He does for the exact reason that when when you start talking about Jonah to so many people, their eyes just glaze over. Because they just go, well, I mean, you know, that's just one of those places in the Scripture where I'm having a hard time. Really? You're having a hard time there? God speaking everything into existence, you're okay with that, but a big fish you're having a problem with. That's your problem? I mean, whenever someone says that to me, I go, so you don't have a problem with his name is God. You have a problem with the fish, but they have a problem with the fish. Okay. I think God does it for that exact reason. So he's swallowed up by a fish, and three days later he's spit up onto the ground. Well, what is all that about? Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, look closely, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. You see that? Now, don't miss the fact that earlier in the very chapter that we're studying, just prior to where we began this morning, back in verse 24, the Bible says, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come unto judgment, but is passed from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And the men of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah will be a part of that resurrection. You see, it's all about Jesus. The three days in the belly of the fish were just a a lamp. But if you read the Bible, 
like it's just a book about God filled with information. If you approach the scripture so you can get out of it what you want, then you get hung up on the big fish. Well, these people that Jesus is talking to, if they're hung up on anybody, it's Moses. So exhibit B, Moses and the rock. Remember the story in Exodus, Moses is leading the children of Israel out of captivity in Egypt, and he's, they're wandering in the wilderness, and they get to a point in time in Exodus chapter 17 where they run out of water, and they start grumbling because they're out of water, and they're thirsty, and you know, there's a million plus people, and all these animals, and it's this huge mess, and there's no water. So what does Moses do? Moses goes before the Lord, and the Lord says, Moses, I want you to stand up before the people. I want you to stand on this rock, and I want you to strike the rock. And so Moses strikes the rock, and what happens? Water gushes out of the rock. A multitude of water so that all the people have all sufficiency and then some. I mean, it floods them. It's like Niagara Falls coming out of this rock in Exodus 17, verse 6. So then they wind up in the same place again. Later on in Numbers chapter 20. And so, God tells Moses what to do. And he says, Moses, I want you to go, and I want you to stand on the rock, and I want you to speak to the rock. And Moses goes up, and he stands on the rock, and what does he do? He strikes the rock. He doesn't speak to the rock. And so God provides water for the people. But then God tells Moses, you're not going to enter the promised land because I told you not to strike the rock to which people who read the Bible like a book about God say, that's so harsh. Why would God do that? What's the big deal about striking the rock a second time? What difference does it make? Maybe God's the one that makes a, a mountain out of a molehill. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, And they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. How many times was Jesus struck down for our sin? One time. The rock was representative of the one who was going to come of the living water that was going to abound forever that whosoever drank of it would never thirst again. But God said, listen, he's going to get stricken once, but he's not going to get striked twice. Just once. Don't you dare hit that rock a second time. God's not overreacting. Look, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, For Christ suffered once for sin. Once for sin, not twice. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, putting to death in the flesh, but made us alive in the Spirit. You see, wherever you're reading in Scripture, the story is about Jesus what's so wonderful about D group is that you get an opportunity 
to see Jesus in all of these scriptures in your, in your time together. Because you're, you're all coming together. And so you're able to get these different uh, viewpoints into things. And you're able to read stories that you've read a hundred times. And suddenly you see clearly for the very first time. I remember having a conversation with somebody. And they were back when we were reading through Genesis. And they were talking about uh, Joseph. And they said, man, that, the story of Joseph is just so amazing. And it's like it came alive to me in this brand new way. And I said, amen. Tell me about it. Now, like Joseph, everything just kept going wrong for him and wrong for him. But he, but he persevered. He, he trusted God. Yes. Keep telling me. What happened? And he just kept persevering. And then what happened? Well, you know, he was, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was forsaken by his own brothers. Yeah. And then he ends up at the end of the story, where? At the right hand of the throne. And the same people that sold him out, that forsook him in the beginning come before him, starving in need, and out of his abundance, he provides for them. I wonder what that's a picture of. All the scriptures bear witness of Jesus. So that's why he says in verse 41, he says, I don't receive honor from men. Listen, no, my, my goal is not to receive honor from men. I've made that crystal clear, verse 42, but, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes only from God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. No, there is one who accuses you. His name is Moses, in whom you trust. You see, Jesus is showing them that their use of Scripture has blinded them to the reality that's right before them. So Scripture is not just a word about God. Scripture is a word from God. It is the word of God. The Bible is not some book that can sit on your shelf next to other books that is in some way... It, it, the, the problem is that it looks like other books, that it is put together like other books, that maybe it, that, that some, in a, with a physical eye you can't... But listen, there is... The Bible is completely different from any other book. It is the supernatural living Word of God. 
And when you realize, when you open this book up and you begin to realize what's going on, you stop searching for your own agenda. You, you stop trying to, to find what you want to find and you just realize, what? Are, are you seeing this? Do you believe this? There's Jesus right on every page of the Old Testament. I thought so many times about our time last year and on Wednesday nights as we studied the entire book of Exodus through the lens of Jesus. Shadows. Remember that time? Chapter, chapter, chapter. The whole entire book of Exodus. The whole thing about Jesus. You see, whatever the Scripture says, God says. God says that. Like, don't get over that reality. It's not people telling you about God. It's God revealing Himself in the form of His Son right in your hands. So Jesus says, I mean, it just blows my mind that Jesus is so still just extending grace upon grace upon grace in the midst of everything that's happening. And, and I think, wow, God, if this wasn't your nature and character, then I would never know you. Maybe you're like me, and when you think about this, you think about ways in which when God saved you, you were worse than these people. You say, well, how can I be worse than these people? They're trying to kill Jesus. Well, at least they believed and had a view about the Bible. I had a view, and trust me, it wasn't that it was the Word of God. I wasn't memorizing the Bible. I didn't want anything to do with it. And God kept reaching and kept being graceful to me. So he says, "You, if you'd believe Moses, you'd believe me. Verse 46. For he wrote about me, but if you do not believe his writings, well, how will you believe my words? Mm. They'd memorized everything Moses said. They literally idolized Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you should hear or him you should listen to. And it's him that they're talking to and they don't realize it. And so as we pull this final piece together, I don't want you to miss Jesus drawing our attention to His love. My love is the last witness here for the reality that Jesus is God. You know, all these things that we've talked about, 
today and over the last several weeks through John chapter 5. But all of this today is sandwiched between these two events. And I, I want you to, to see this. These two encounters. And it's between that all of this happens. Re- remember after Jesus healed the man at the pool at Bethesda and he... The Bible says in John chapter 5, verse 14, that Jesus circled back and went back through the crowd. And the Bible says afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. He, said, he, he went back and found that man. Even though he's made it abundantly clear that he knows the heart of man, he went back and found him, knowing his heart. He found him and brought it to his attention, the fact that he had been made healed. He'd been made well. But he said, don't, don't stop there. You have a greater need. Your external healing is not your greatest need and the man rejected him and the Bible says in the very next verse he turned away and went and told the Jews it was Jesus who healed him and started all this trouble for Jesus and then we have all the things that we've talked about over the last two weeks and then the other slice of bread in this sandwich is John chapter 6 now we'll just dip our toe in this pool this morning John 6 begins this way. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and then a great multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, it was the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near, And then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming towards him said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Jesus knows the crowd is following him because they have their own agenda. Because they want what he has to offer. They're not interested in him. And yet he looks out across this crowd and he says, well, where will we buy bread? In spite of their selfish motivations, Jesus in his love and compassion has healed all their diseases and their sicknesses and their, their ailments and affirmities. He's, he's loving them in spite of their Wrong motivations. And then I come to verse 6. And I just stop. But this Jesus said to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Now, I think most of us in the room know what's about to happen, right? I mean, you can just look at the heading in your Bible and see that. 
Jesus is about to feed 5,000 people. And somebody's going to show up with a little lunchbox from a boy, and he's going to take that, those loaves and those fishes, and he's going to multiply them, and he's going to feed 10, 12,000 people. 5,000 men, their wives, their children. Feed them all. But what happens after everyone's eaten? When everyone is stuffed to the gills, when everybody has, has partaken of all that they can take, then Jesus tells his disciples to go and collect all the leftovers. Now remember, I'm just stuck on the fact that he said this to test them because he knew what he was going to do. Why would God not give them exactly the amount of food that they needed in that moment? Why? Would it have been too hard for this great God who seems to be able to do anything? Would it have been too hard for him to orchestrate it so that the last... Wouldn't you all love it? Wouldn't it be every preacher's favorite sermon that there was one piece left and then some little girl walked up and said is there any left for me and they said there's the last piece sweetie it worked out perfect (laughs) but that ain't what happened he said go and get the baskets and start filling it up with all the stuff that's left over and I say why why God not what did you do But why did you do it? I think about the children of Israel wandering in the promised land. And every day God would provide food for them. And the way he would feed them was manna. Bread from heaven. And he would have manna rain down upon them. And he would tell them, now I want you to go out and collect enough manna for today. And if tomorrow's the Sabbath, then you can collect enough for tomorrow. But don't collect any more than what you need for today. To which again, I ask the question. Why? Why wouldn't God just rain down the amount of manna that was needed For the day. It's not like God can't exactly do what God wants to do. So why are there all these leftovers in John chapter 6? Why is there so much more manna than they need? Why? And then as we'll get into next week, Jesus is about to say in John 6 that I am the bread from heaven. Oh. Yeah, the bread and the provision is a symbol of you. And when you come, just like when the water ran out of the rock, it wasn't just enough for them to drink. It was enough to drown a thousand times them. Jesus doesn't come 
and bring us just enough. He comes and brings us everything we could have ever imagined and then sometimes a thousand. Jesus comes and he's not just enough, but he's more than enough. He's abundant beyond abundant. He comes and brings complete healing and complete restoration. And, and, and when he comes into our lives, he comes in the fullness of who he is. And so I'm thinking to myself, in John chapter 6, verse 6, before any of this happens, he looks at a crowd of people who he knows their motivations are wrong, and he says, oh yeah, what are we going to do about feeding all these people? But he already knew in his heart what he was going to do. He already knew in his heart that he was about to rain down on them far more exceedingly abundantly than they could ever ask or think, right? Right. So here we are this morning. And you came in here this morning and maybe you're wondering to yourself, if I sell out to following Jesus... If I give everything to following him, what's he going to do? What's that going to look like? What's he going to change? How, how are things going to go? What's going to happen to this and what's going to happen to that? And I want you to know that God already knows what He's going to do in your life. And He's not just going to give you enough to get by. But He's going to pour Himself out on you in ways you could never have imagined. He's going to give Himself and make Himself available to you in ways that you in this moment could never even begin to fathom. The wonder and the splendor of the scripture that, that lies before you that you have yet to dive into and really fully grasp. Maybe you came in here this morning and you're facing this difficult season. And you, you're a child of God. But you, you, you feel like God's testing you. You feel like he's testing you because you're facing these challenges and, and you don't know how they're going to work out and you don't know how you're going to get past them and you don't know how these, the, the, God's going to use your situations or circumstances or whatever it is in your finite ability to comprehend. You can't seem to, to see and, and you're, maybe you would just say in your own words, God, why are you testing me? What is this about? I want you to know this morning that he already knows what he will do. He already knows. You see, he, he, he is unwaveringly 
devoted to accomplishing the Father's will. And that's globally and universally and personally in your life. Right now. Right where you are, in whatever circumstance and situation you're in right now, He's devoted to that. He's utterly devoted to that. And He already knows what He will do. And He's not going to shortchange you. He's not going to withhold from you. He's not playing hide-and-seek with you. He can't make himself any more available than he already has. He's given you all the testimony and all the witness. Just the few simple things I've said this morning. It would be impossible. It would be impossible for these events to be Recorded in Scripture a thousand years apart and to perfectly be orchestrated the way they were, it'd be impossible. But evidence won't overcome unbelief. Faith will. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so I pray this morning that as you consider. This Jesus and his current work in your life today. He may be testing you, but he already knows what he's going to do in your life. And you should be running towards that with your arms so wide open, with such joy, because if God is doing it, Look at, look at the compassion he shows to his enemies. What is he going to do in the lives of his children, in the lives of his brethren? 